Blog Talk Radio. This is the Converted Mets man, Sam Maxwell, and you are here with a special edition, tentatively, of a Metsian podcast. And uh, without further ado, I'm going to bring on Mike LeCohen immediately. The last time that we came on here to celebrate Steve Cohen buying the Mets, it, really, we just we got the news that they were even thinking of doing it, and we just went ballistic. We're going to take it a little simpler this time around because we got one more hurdle. Really, one more hurdle, Mike, and then we can say that the Wilpons are out of here. One more hurdle. Uh, I would take that with a grain of salt. How are you, Sam, by the way? I'm doing well. You know, life continues to throw curveballs your way, but you got to try to bat them out of the, the park as much as possible. Yeah. You know, as far as getting approved by the other major league owners, I had tweeted this out a couple of days ago. If the Mets are strong road draw, owners make money. I don't foresee Steve Cohen encountering any problems whatsoever getting approved by Major League Baseball, i.e. the owners. Uh, you know, look at the way Magic Johnson and his and the way his ownership group came into L.A. Uh, they came in with both guns blazing. So uh, this is really no different in that respect. Uh, there's a lot of there's a, lo, a, a lot of uh, deep-pocketed owners in baseball. Uh, the Angels have one, uh, so this is not uncommon. Uh, this is the way they like it. This is the way they prefer it. I don't hear owners clamoring for a uh, salary cap, you know. But that remains to be seen. Uh, December of next year, the collective bargaining agreement expires and baseball and the union will have to negotiate another one. I don't know how much this purchase of the Mets by Steve Cohn will affect that or influence that one way or another. Uh, but I certainly think uh, specific issues will be on the table. A salary cap is not one of them. Uh, but happy day. Here we are, Sam. Uh, the agreement, as far as we understand has been finalized, Steve Cohen will indeed purchase the New York Mets. I've seen nothing in so far as SNY being part of this. And as far as we understand, the deal goes down for anywhere between 2.4 to $2.5 billion. Uh, interesting that, you know, way back when Fred and, and Saul and they got Mr. Nelson Doubleday involved in the transaction. They purchased the Mets for what was then a record, I believe it was $22 million. You know, and then a uh, couple of negotiations afterwards, Will Pons and the Doubledays become equal partners. 
and you know how that story unfolded. And if you don't, you probably we're probably going to go through it this evening. But it is a happy day. Uh, it's been 40 years under the soda ship, and for a long, long time, uh, fans have been clamoring for them, the Wilpons, that is, to sell. And here we are. That day has arrived. You know they took over the they took over sole ownership of the team by uh, 2003, and since then uh, it's been troublesome. You know, without being facetious, it's been a troublesome relationship between ownership and the team and fans. You know that triangle. So what say you, Sam? I, you know, I'm not going to jump up and down until it's completely official. Um, you know, I think that it's, it's interesting because you brought up the salary cap and it immediately makes me go to the fact that there seems to be more parity in baseball over, like, basically since the Yankees' last dynasty. Um, and they have not had a cap. And been, there's been better parity uh, over the course of those 20 years than arguably any other sport. Uh, and I can't really speak too much to hockey, um, but that's that's the one thing I think. Um, in terms of the the the, the idea of the uh, collective bargaining agreement coming up, um, yeah, I I don't see why they would all of a sudden, when historically speaking, the salary cap has been uh, a a just a a, a non-negotiator. Uh, when it comes to the the players' league, uh, the players' league, you know, the players' association. Um, yeah. But in terms of Cohen, I, I, what I'm just really interested to see when it's all said and done, we we want him because of his money and a lot of people because of the way he's done business outside of the insider trading allegations as well as the sexual harassment claims for his company, not him specifically, and. Um, the thing that I, I read specifically about just the way hedge fund managers work plays well into the structure that Mets fans are looking for when it comes to baseball operations, because it's kind of like analyze, execute, analyze, execute. And whenever you heard about the way the Wilpons were doing things, there was just constant micromanaging. And basically they would be mulling over a deal for three days and all of a sudden that deal would go to the Angels or that deal would go to the Reds or whatever other team was looking for that type of player. Um, there was just constant conversations. And, of course, you know, collaboration should be key, but it always seemed that Jeff Wilpon specifically had to mull over it for a few days. And that, that wasn't conducive to proper operating skills. Um, so I guess let's go there in terms of – what you have, if if you've read anything specifically on Steve Cohen and how you think that his way of doing business outside of any allegations and paying the government millions and billions of dollars for insider trading, um, what how do you think he is going to be prepared for a job like this as owner of the New York Mets? I haven't delved too deeply into his business matters. Uh, yes. Uh, Mets fans want him because of his potential financial clout uh, and 
because he has the wherewithal to operate this organization in the manner in which a New York City entity should be run. Uh, but he also brings to the table Met's sensibilities, which perhaps the previous, shall we say, previous owners at this point, which the Wilpons did not bring to the table. They just didn't. Uh, we've always said it, uh, to borrow a word from you, you know, they, they're tone deaf. They really are. And we know Steve Cohen, he said it himself, he's a fan. He's a fan of the Mets. And now he's going to be owner. So he's going to bring sensibilities that are more conducive uh, to fans and the fan-team relationship. Uh, it, it seems like, you know, if the Wilpons did anything well, it was alienate fans. Uh, and if there was an MVP trophy for that, they would have won it every year. Uh, you know, that micromanaging, we call it micromanaging, but the Wilpons will call it, you know, quote-unquote, the collegial front office atmosphere that everyone has to say. Uh, it's not a dictatorship. Uh, you know, if you have something to say, say it, and, and we'll collaborate, and we'll arrive at a conclusion or a solution to some matter together uh but we know that wasn't the case uh jeff wilpon post the child of nepotism lack of experience practical or otherwise uh, uh and we also learned you know uh, a lack of interpersonal skills amongst the litany of things we've criticized him for over the years uh, but that's all going to be gone. Now, as far as the structure of the organization, uh, I think that's the key word, structure and organization. I hope beyond hope. I'm crossing my fingers. But I do believe this this person, Steve Cohen, will run a traditional organization, i.e. hiring a, a president of baseball operations. Uh whereas the Wilpons did not do that, never have. Uh, they were always, uh, you know, knee-deep in all operations. We like to say, and general managers for the Mets have loved to say, no, I have complete autonomy. That was never the case. That was never the case. Not for as long as Jeff was around. So hopefully... Mr. Cohen hires a president of baseball operations. And this person will be responsible in the hierarchy of things, in the chain of command for everything below him or her. Let me not limit that to gender. That would be wrong of me. Uh, and there are qualified women out there who can fill this role. Uh, we've talked about this last time the Mets were seeking a general manager. So we know they're out there. Uh, and Anything's possible. But I would hope that Steve Cohen hires a president of baseball operations and that this person hires the general manager and a, if you want to say, president of minor league operations. In other words, delegate effectively, smartly, and everyone reports to him insofar as Baseball matters, matters, minor league or major league. Now, having said that, ownership, i.e. Steve Cohen, he hands down 
his mandate because as owner, he has uh, standards, I guess, lack of a better word, that he would want met. And as an owner, you hand down your mandate to your president. And, you know, the general manager and the owner, theoretically, in this relationship, should not come in contact. Now, of course, you know, I don't mean that to be the sterile environment that it sounds to be. Of course, they can be friends and cordial and have coffee in the mornings and talk business and talk baseball, obviously. But when it comes to making decisions uh, at, at the most fundal, fundamental levels of an organization and how it operates, delegation. The owner delegates to his president. The president delegates to his general manager. And then everything branches out from there. General manager is in charge of the minor league operation. Whether he chooses to put a president in place or not, that's his decision. If he doesn't or he she doesn't think too much of an undertaking general managers will handle that themselves uh, but delegation is key here and that's something that the Wilpons uh, never did uh, never did wholeheartedly maybe cosmetically but never wholeheartedly and effectively and genuinely for that matter uh, so again yeah. we're hoping beyond all hope Steve Cohen comes in here and I hope implements the traditional uh, model, the traditional standing operating procedure and delegates his authority down and, and you hold your president accountable. You can't fire the boss. That's always been our problem right. with the Wilpons. You know, you can't Is fire the, the boss. boss. The boss put himself in there in the position that would normally be a president. You know? And again, I don't understand why he wouldn't want to be called the president of the Mets, but we don't have to go down into semantics uh, that much. But I'm, I'd right. like to go with Brody um, and analyzing the job he has done, you know, because the interesting thing is that he has in some fashion, and I think enough people have given him credit for this, he has in some fashion brought the Mets into the modern world when it comes to analytics and the drafting. He's hired – he went ahead and hired some people who were connected to the Red Sox, the Rays. Um, and even though he himself wasn't a guy like, like Hein Bloom, who was this young up-and-coming GM, um, he did make some young up-and-coming hires within the scouting department and, and the drafting. Now, mind you, at the same time, he has used those assets, and maybe not the direct – uh, drafted assets, but he has looked at the minor league system very much as assets that you involve in trades. So it's interesting. His the grade is incomplete. What? How do you think? Uh, you know, we we can we have no idea yet exactly what Cohen's thought process on here. But I wonder if we're analyzing the incomplete grade. You could probably give him, and at best, probably a C plus a lot of people might give him a D. So what would, number one, what would you grade him? And number two, how do you think the overall experience of what Brody has brought to the table and, and his moves both uh, at major league or otherwise, how do you think Cohen's going to analyze that in whether or not to retain him immediately? 
<sighs> Cohen's going to come in, and it's not like he's out of the loop. It's not like uh, he's formed of the situation. He's watched Brody in action. If Steve Cohen uh, has had throughout this time intentions of buying the Mets, he's been paying attention to their operation and, and transactions. So uh, I won't say that BBW will get fired right away. Uh, he will probably probably get reevaluated, uh, and that'll be a conversation. I hope takes place just to see. But you bring up great points in so far as Brody's uh, bolstering, at least on the executive level, the minor league operation. I was very happy with those imports. Still am. But apparently Brody uh, has deemed any and anybody, any and everybody drafted by Sandy Alderson available. I think he's made that very clear. You know, if you were a Sandy guy, you're out. I'm trading you. Trade bait. Uh, And it seems to me he's relying on his own drafting and hopefully they mature and develop in a in a timely manner. I guess that's what he's thinking. Uh, but, yeah, there'll be a decision to make, and I wouldn't make it too quickly. I, I would reassess Brody. I would look at the field. I would see who's available, you know, because if we're talking a lateral higher, nobody above Brody, nobody below Brody, then – What's the difference? In the meantime, at least he can work for you. You see, once you hand down the mandate, Brody's job description changes. The mandate comes from up above. Brody's operating according to Jeff's mandate. They're buds. You know, so when Jeff came up to him and says, yo, man, this is my plan. You think you can put it into effect? Brody says, yeah, bro, I'll make this happen for you. Don't worry. We know it's you, but nobody else needs to know it. I'll take the hit for you. (laughs) <laughs> you know, it's a, really what we have now is, is a puppet <laughs> show, but it's the man, it's the mandate that matters. You know, if Cohen steps in and says, look, I laugh and joke, but I don't play. Your job has just turned into something a lot more serious than it used to be. This is what I want. And if you can't handle it, I'll bring in somebody who can. You see, so to me, it's about the mandate and less about Brody and what he's done. If we want to be fair, he took a subpar team and got, what, 80, how many victories out of them last year? 86? Am I right? Same same as 1976, like you always enjoyed. 1976. You're right. Yeah, one of your favorite games. I mean, the fact of the matter is, the truth is, if we're being fair, that Brody did take a team and numbers-wise, wins-wise, improved it. Somehow, (laughs) <laughs> somehow the fan base just isn't happy the way he's gone about it. They're under 500. So you have things that are going well, but when you're under 500, more things are going badly. You know, so it's not an equal conversation. If they were above 500, 
You're going to speak more positively about what's happening on the field and less negatively. But to steal a couple of words uttered by uh, John Harper, I believe it was yesterday on SNY, and I'm paraphrasing it, but he says, every day they do something wrong. Every day they do something wrong. Yep. Be it this, that, or the other. It's never a clean game with these people. You know, and lately it's been base running. And before that, it was defense. And before that, we were up in arms over uh, batting with runners in scoring position. And just to reiterate, he says, you know, there's never a day that goes by, there's never a game that goes by that these guys, you know, can't help but do something wrong. And that's bad. You know, we've always spoken about how this is a a uh, a poorly constructed team. I'm not calling it a bad team, but it's certainly poorly constructed. Uh, let's let's say the talent, you know, has gotten them to this many wins. Uh, and can things change over the next 13 games? Yeah, 13 games is enough to make an impact insofar as the 2020 season. But nothing more, nothing less. So you asked originally for me to give Brody a report card. I'll give him a C plus, just slightly above average. Uh, nothing more, nothing less. C plus. Uh, and I think I'm being kind. Yeah, I think we're being kind. I think kind I'm too, being kind. Yeah. I, so um, I just happen to be it, in a good mood so imagine, because we're getting a new owner, <laughs> you know. Imagine five years ago I had told you the Mets offense is going to be above and beyond, wor- like worlds better than what, you know, not only what it was by the end of 2015, but also especially when it was what it was in the middle of 2015, but we'd still be six games under 500. So if we're you yeah. know, we're segueing, I like how you segued a little bit to the the, the current team. Um, this offense is you know other than some of their issues they've had in runners with runners in scoring position, and especially we've seen that lately. Um, but the main problem has been the, the pitching, and we thought we were going to have this handled. We thought this was going to be uh, taken care of, and I, I I hope that one day the Mets can intersect both a good offense and a good pitching routine again. Well, here we are again in some form. You know, 2015, we got through on pitching, and because of the transactions at the trade deadline, uh, we also benefited from timely hitting. That was 2015. It bled somewhat into 2016. But we blew it. We didn't supplement that pitching staff well enough, and that points back to the Will Pond's finances. Here we are again, and you're right. We have a nice core of offensive players. Conforto, Alonzo, McNeil, Dominic Smith, uh, and now, if you care to throw into the mix, you know, Andres Jimenez. Uh, you notice that I left out Ahmed Rosario, Uh <laughs> he's leaving a lot of people wondering. That's interesting. At least, at I think he might get traded this off. Leaving, 
Oh, he's leaving a lot of people wondering as to what exactly his future is going to be in Flushing. He's certainly not distinguishing himself. You know, we know that much to be true. But here we are with this core. So Steve Cohen is going to have to come in and figure out his front office because you don't want to let this core slip, slip away, slip away from your control. Because right now they're all young and under control. And, you know, we hope that salary isn't going to be a, a hindering factor moving forward. But the time is going to come where we're going to have to open up the wallets uh, for some of these guys when they come time. Uh, but we'll cross that bridge when we get to it. And in the meantime, they need to get a front office in place that's going to smartly complement this little core that we've got and, and hopefully do something with it and not let it uh, just slip through our fingers like we did that pitching staff 2015. Who were we left with? You know, Thor's on the disabled list, then we got DeGrom left. Otherwise, uh, and we got Matt. Isn't that amazing? He's, he's, amazing? And he's a ball. <laughs> it, it is amazing. <laughs> amazing. Only the Mets. Amazing. Amazing. You know? Amazing. Not Mama, not Papa, Mets. Now, here's a little something I want to get into, you know, because I, I, okay. I just don't want to completely just troll the, the will puns. You know, from – I remember when Joan Payson passed away in 75. I remember when Casey Stingle passed away in 75. You know, and uh, M. Donald Grant and Lorinda DeRolay, they were in charge of the club. They were running the club, mostly M. Donald Grant, but, you know, Lorinda Duralea, she was in charge of the finances. And uh, she was a, a notorious non-spender. She, uh, you know what? I'm not going to sit here and badmouth her either. But we lived through what they call the dark years, 77, 8, 9, 80, you know, up until and when the Will Ponds and Doubleday purchased the team from the Joan Payson estate. And we looked upon them like saviors. We were happy that we were getting new owners. We were ecstatic. I remember it like yesterday because the dark years were just that, very dark. Chase Stadium was empty. You know, I'm talking about 7,000 a night, sometimes less, sometimes more. You know, if we got 13,000 at Shea, that was a good crowd. 20,000 was uncommon. You know, but we were happy that the Wilpons actually was just Fred at the time. You know, Saul Katz uh, was not a topic of discussion, and Jeff certainly wasn't in the picture yet. So it was just Fred and Nelson Doubleday, and we were so happy that they were taking over the team. We really were. Uh, we looked at them like saviors. Uh, we don't know. We didn't know then what we know about them now. But apparently, along the way, Nelson Doubleday and Frank Cashman, for that matter, came to learn things about how Fred Wilpon operated. When it came time for Fred to ante up Nelson Doubleday's half of the team, when Nelson wanted out. It was no secret, and it's been reported, that the Wilpons reverted back to their Madoff accounts to facilitate 
Mr. Doubleday getting his money. Frank Cashin also had a portion of his salary deferred, and he admitted uh, during the Madoff proceedings that he was aware that a portion of his deferred salary was in part being uh, funneled, if that's a wrong word, or, or, or financed through Madoff accounts. And again, that's been reported in the Times and other periodicals. Uh, I have links, so I'm not making this up. So, you know, Madoff was no secret to Nelson Doubleday or Frank Cashin. Uh, and he was no secret to the front office, I would say, you know, safely, 2000 on. I won't say that about the 90s. I never uh, encountered such information and research and the like. But Frank Cashin and Nelson Doubleday were aware of how Fred operated with Bernie Madoff. Uh, I'm not bringing up questions of legality, what he knew, what he didn't know. That's not my intention. My only intention is to put out there that they were aware he had a financial relationship with Bernie Madoff way before the crash ever took place. Uh, Nelson Doubleday and Wilpon famously fought over whether or not to retain Mike Piazza, over whether or not to uh, renovate Shea Stadium or, or build a new stadium. Doubleday knew they couldn't afford a new stadium. That's why he broke out in a rash. He was like, what are you talking about? We can't afford a new stadium. But in Fred's mind, he could because he had Madoff in his back pocket. He had no qualms going into massive debt. He promised the banks, no, don't worry, I'm going to have $3.5 million in my seats every year, these loans. Don't worry about it, guy. I got you. And, and look where we are now. You know, the, prophet, the prophecy is fulfilled. When Nelson Doubleday walked out the door, he said, Fred Wilpon's going to run this team into the ground. And that's exactly what happened. And here we are, 40 years later, you know, since they purchased the team together in 1980, 40 years later and all these years later after the Wilpons took over sole possession in 2003, here we are, our next savior, our new savior, Steve Cohen. Thank goodness. Thank goodness. Because at least, uh, like we say, Sam, we'll have the wherewithal to operate like a, a New York City National League enterprise. And, and, like, this is not to disparage any other region. But, you know, not only do we want to operate like a New York City franchise, but, you know, just imagine, not to say, like, we, we may have been the Buffalo Bills of the National League, um, the way the Dodgers have kind of become that, uh, you know, outside of the fact that the Astros may have been stealing signs during that World Series. Um, it, it, we want to operate like any well-oiled ball club should. I mean, look at Tampa Bay and the way they are able to compete year after year after year with no money at all. 
and and that was what was so weird. And this, and this is where baseball operations come in. And first of all, I want to compliment you. You have a really great way of contextualizing the feelings that we're having now on this macro explanation of the history of the Wilpons with the New York Mets. And, <laughs> and you, you do, you were able to kind of compartmentalize it all within the matter of two to three minutes, maybe five. Um, I wasn't, I wasn't, I didn't have a stopwatch on you, Mike. Um, but in that context, like you, you think about it, you go back to all of that and they brought in Frank Cashin at first and the Wilpons didn't have as much power as they did eventually. Um, and at some point, even Frank Cashin gained a little too much hubris and split up the, the, uh, the bad boys of 1986. And, um, you know, just yet another example of a player like Kevin, like Kevin Mitchell going somewhere and winning an MVP. Um, and that's the thing. So it, it just all comes back to baseball operations because, we could have been scre- like, like it's not like the Mets haven't been spending a hundred to a hundred and fifty million dollars per year. But if you take the way the Tampa Bay Rays were operating on what fifty to seventy-five million a year, put those decision makers in a hundred to one hundred and fifty million dollar budget, that right there is the only reason why the Wilpons have struggled because they have not done what they need to do with the 100 to 150 million, which is sometimes 25 to 75 million more dollars than other people spend, you know? So right then and there, and I'll let you take, take it over with whatever you want to talk about from here. Um, Right there. It's all about baseball operations. And that's exactly what you were talking about when trying to break down what you hope Steve Cohen does. Well, you know, you speak of proactive organizations. You bring up the Rays. Did you know the owner of the Rays is from Brooklyn, Sternberg? <laughs> Chalk another one That's up That's interesting, Brooklyn. of course. Him and Jerry Reinsdorf. Anyway, <clears throat> excuse me. But, uh, you know, you're talking about a proactive organization. Plan, and they execute said plan. And then, you know, the results are what they are. They just hope for the best. But they're awfully good at what they do in so far as the minor league operation. You see, now the Mets under Jeff, Fred, they've always been a reactive organization. They're always reacting to something. They're never proactive. If they were proactive, we would have all those minor leaguers that everyone's so pissed off about that they're not here in the Mets uniform. See, they did that out of reactiveness, not proactiveness. And as far as other organizations, you know, regional networks have helped level the playing field. You know, so Steve Cohen doesn't come into baseball this, you know, financial ogre that everyone's making him out to be. Uh, Teams can afford to retain in a better manner than they could have, say, 20 years ago. Uh, You know, I could be off on that guesstimation. But regional networks have definitely leveled the playing field. Is there still a disparity between the top and the bottom? Yeah, absolutely, without a doubt. And the Rays proved that. 
you know, in teams like uh, L.A. now, you know, they're, they're the bookends, Rays in L.A. Uh, and you have a bunch of teams at the top and you have a, a cluster of teams at the bottom and everyone's all, everyone else is in the middle. So it's a lot more playing field than it used to be. Uh, I don't think anyone's scared of Stephen Cohen's money, but they are scared of the Mets being, you know, one of the top competitors again. But again, when the Mets are a good road draw, other owners make money, and baseball makes money. So, you know, green trumps all. Let's remember that. Uh, and that's that's the language of the owners. You know, you could ask players whatever they want, executives, whatever. whatever. When it comes to ownership, money, 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 money. <laughs> some more than others. You know, for some, this is a hobby. Steve Cohen, obviously, he doesn't need to make a profit off the Mets. This is this is more hobby for him. Uh, whereas other owners, you know, they depend on the operation of their ball club for their for their livelihood. Uh, but this is interesting. You know, Sam, something else I want to bring up. It, it's just a damn shame. If you really think about it, had they gone about this correctly, uh, with any kind of forethought and self-awareness, uh, Fred Wilpon, I mean, not ruined or blew up. He just completely nuked uh, uh, just a wonderful opportunity to create an enduring legacy here in New York City. After all, they did buy the Mets, you know. Uh, had he gotten the stadium right, had he not financially operated the Mets the way he has. Considering this, the man was from cool that he was a Brooklyn Dodger fan. But, you know, as far as feel-good stories go, he was from Brooklyn. He went to Lafayette High School. He was a pitcher. He threw a no-hitter. For the high school team, Sandy Koufax was his first baseman, and then he buys the Mets, and they're successful. And Shea Stadium inevitably has to come down, and the new stadium has to go up. And you get it right. Oh, man, you're a hero in this town. Think about it. A kid from Brooklyn who buys the local team and elevates it to heights unknown. Think about the legacy he could have left behind. Think about the fans that he could have left behind, all the all the good wishes and, and feel good that uh, would have just immersed him from the locals, from New Yorkers. Him being local, a New Yorker, but that's not the way it played out, and it's sad because they weren't this cold-hearted, you know, uh, Death Star conglomerate. Cubs used to be owned by, you know, when they were owned by the Tribune or other teams. You know, they weren't looked upon down from their parent company, like, uh, you know, like they do. This was a family-owned business, father, brother-in-law, son, 
It could have been something, but they completely ruined it. Both teams needed new stadiums, the Mets and Yankees both. Think about this. Could you envision the Yankees building a new and making it look like the polo grounds? Think about that. Yeah. That's really that's really funny. That's very interesting. Think about that. No, they made it look exactly like Yankee Stadium. And and you know hey, they um, ruined. I think we got a uh, Mike. If you can take a look at the the board, I think we might have a caller. Wow. Okay. Caller from nine one four. Identify yourself for for us, please. Hi. Um. It's Max again. Uh, you know the hey. the seventeen year old. <laughs> What's going on? Um, yeah, I I I just I'm calling in. I have to go at nine, so um, I just want to talk about this whole Steve Cohen thing. And I think it's actually very interesting. Like, first of all, I think that with the with the thing you said, Sam, about giving Brody a grade. I think while he has done some weird, wacky stuff, like sometimes I'll look at a move by Brody Ben Wagonin and I'll just say, what in the world is he thinking right now? What in the world is his motivation? Like, what is, like, like, I guess you could, I could, I could look back to the trade deadline. Like, Chirinos? Like, Frazier? Like, I understand the club has presence, but you already have a veteran in Canel. Like, and the the shots of of making the postseason are already so far against us. And you're going to get a guy who's trying to – look, the point is, is that Brody has had some questionable moves. But he's also had some pretty freaking amazing moves. I think that the people who are – do good in AAA, but then don't do well in the major leagues for like one year. The the people that the the, the prospects that will you know three hundred four four like 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 ten home runs and and like you know like ninety RBIs in AAA. Like these are the people that really we should really be focused on. Also pitchers too. And that's who Brody Van Wagenen saw in J.D. Davis. He knew Alex Bregman was at third, and they were never going to call up J.D. Davis for a big, like, everyday role. So they said, hey, you know, we sort of sort of have an opening at third base. There is no harm in making a trade for him because he is worth nothing. So they did, and they traded, like, what, like Bobby, uh, who was it? Like, some, like, weird, uh, some, like, uh, some obscure prospects. And in and 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 lo and behold, what did he do when he finally slotted into the third base role? He killed it. I think this was like one of the most genius moves. I I play MLB the show, and I um and I always look for these kinds of players because you know even though it's fake and everything, when I when I do franchise, even though it's fake and even though it's you know a simulation of the game, I still think that you know the 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 idea of someone in the minor leagues who can't go to the major leagues because a star has that place, like, I think that's, like, always a great trade target. Someone who obtains the spot, who I traded for and turned out being, like, huge for me, was Caleb Ferguson. He's a prospect in the Dodgers system. I think the Dodgers 
bullpen. I don't, I don't know when he came up. He came up, um, like, I, I don't remember exactly. But I don't know if he did well. He did okay. But in the minor leagues, he did amazing. And he also did amazing in AAA in MLB The Show. So I said, hey, why don't I trade for him? Because he's worth nothing except for a little potential, which I, I think I, I don't know what I traded him for. It, it wasn't that big. And what did I get in return? A bullpen arm, which I kept for like four years, and he did amazing. I think, and so I think these kinds of moves are things that Brody, you know, plans out. He planned out the J.D. Davis thing, and it worked to perfection. Some things that are sort of questionable, we don't know about the the, the Robinson Cano-Diaz trade yet. You know, we don't know what Diaz is going to be like in the future. We don't know if he's ever going to be a closer. We don't even know... You know, he's still young. I think it's way, way too early to say if they won the trade. You know, it depends what Cano's going to do next year. Honestly, my hope is that he doesn't play in some kind of way because of just how much we have. Like, I think, like, Luis Guillorme is um, just someone who really deserves uh, a, a starting spot. If we keep the DH, then, you know, Dom Smith, like, you know, we can really keep him in the lineup. Like, I don't – I feel like players that we have – players that players that are, first of all, mediocre. Like, I, I thought that letting go of Todd Frazier was really good last year at the end of the offseason. I thought it was great. I thought it was, like, perfect. Like, thank God, you know, Todd Frazier, like, he swings at everything. And used some, he had a great stretch, like, in August or something like that. But – you know he's 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 um stingy. He doesn't you know he gets on hot streaks and he gets on cold streaks and it's really weird to see the cold streaks and it's really fun to see the hot streaks. I don't like those kind of kinds of players. I like kinds of players that will consistently hit. The players like J D Davis, McNeil, um, sort of Alonzo. He was more of that last year. Um, I guess Andres Jimenez. He's always consistent in what he does. You know walks and Nimmo too. Um, and Dom Smith, like these are like this core of players. Like I, I think that it's it's smart. Um, and I think if Brody is really smart, if he's just as you mentioned before, if he is really smart, he would trade Ahmed Rosario for either a bullpen arm or a starting pitcher arm. That would be a smart move. If he doesn't, get then fielder. he's get a center fielder. That's what they I have. Nimmo. Get out of here. They got Nemo, you know, Marisnik. Marisnik's been good, but is he really the long-term solution? Is a platoon between Nemo and Marisnik a long-term solution? I hear what you're saying, but there's like Mike. If you want to continue here, you always talk about how um, they there's there's so many people out of place, and maybe Rosario could become a great center fielder. Um, but I, I'll I'll say this too, and and to to piggyback on what Max is saying. I, it, it's funny, I do believe they need a center fielder, but I don't want them to get rid of Dom just because, Dom Smith, just because he uh, should be a first baseman. So, oh, yeah, I, I think I think he can actually be a long-term left fielder. Like, he's still learning, and, you know, if he if he learns the position well, he can really, he can really, you know, become like, you know, maybe, maybe in the future a Golden Glover. He has that potential. To become a good. Well, I, I think may, that's possible. Possible, but I, I mean, I don't like. Sometimes it's like with Daniel Murphy. You think that he's carrying over, but then all of a sudden he makes a. a I, I don't think 
I actually have more faith at this point, weirdly enough, in Dom from a defensive standpoint than I do in Daniel Murphy from second base perspective, just giving a little historical I perspective. Yeah. But I, Max, Max I'm, I'm kind of curious before you, you know, we were probably not going too past nine anyway, so let, let me carry it over to Mike. Mike, I would, you know, I think that my, you know, basically what Max is saying in terms of Dom potentially, you know, being like an actual considered left fielder in the future, if that is the case, especially if you think that he just means too much of the team at this point to get rid of, then you need a real – you can't do that in center field anymore. So go, go ahead and, and pick it up from there, Mike. Well, this goes back to your president of baseball operations and a standing operating procedure. Players be damned. I agree J.D. Davis was a good pickup because he got backlogged at San Francisco. Sometimes a player just needs an opportunity, and he's getting that opportunity here. Uh, That's a good thing. That's a positive. Not San Francisco. Houston. Oh, Houston. Uh, what I say? Yeah, I said sure. San Francisco? All right. I'm, yeah. I'm ahead of myself then. Uh, Houston. <laughs> <laughs> but part of the problem we fans have is looking at the Mets through orange-colored glasses. You know, for the moment, you stick with what you have until you improve it. And this is where I'll circle back to your president of baseball operations and your general manager. If I'm the general manager, I'm saying to myself, I want to be strong up the middle. I want to be strong at catcher, short, second, and center field. That's my mission, to improve up the middle. And then I look at what I have. And if I'm looking at Brandon Nimmo as my center fielder, I look at my options, how to improve that. And if I can't, you stick with them. But if I can, you make the move. Do you so, think that Nimmo can 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 be the future? Because I really think he can. I'm gonna go. Uh, I can I, actually look I, up like some leaderboard. I'm pretty sure like Nimmo's somewhere on. I think it's like walks or on base. I, I don't know. He's he's up there I, on know, the leaderboards. Max, sorry to interrupt, but as long as we're talking about the outfield or the outfield, can we just like, especially? I don't think we've been on air since Michael Conforto made that play, but. Uh, it, it's pretty remarkable that, you know, you heard what you heard about how he was like an okay defensive center fielder, but it's those baseball instincts that really shine. And right now we're, we're just worried about locking this kid up and we're not worried about which position he needs to play because he's our, he's our uh, uh, right fielder. And he's been doing a remarkable job. I mean, that was one of the greatest plays I've ever seen, Mike. It was a good play. I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> but it was a very good play, a damn good play. And right field yeah. is where he belongs. He is a right fielder. He's a natural right fielder. He had no business yeah. in center field. And this is part of the problem with this collegial front office. Nobody's stepping forward and saying, guys, this is not the way to run a club. So hopefully Steve Cohen brings in people who say, this is how you run a club. And damn it, I want to be strong up the middle, catch a short second and center field. And if yeah. this incoming Honest. executive doesn't feel that Brandon Nilmo is up to snuff, then out he goes. Doesn't matter what I feel. The kid's batting two fifty eight. 
I know nobody. I, I know people nowadays look down upon batting average. His on base percentage is up, three eighty eight. That's good. That's desirable. But do I think he's our franchise center fielder and leadoff hitter? Not willing to go there yet. Those are those orange colored glasses, and he's coming up soon. I, I look. I like his development. I know where he came from, you know, and how he's developed and where he where he was and where he is. I get all that. But is he your optimal center fielder and leadoff hitter, or or do you desire more? Part of that gets answered with who's surrounding him. So right now you have to prioritize who is within your core and who is not, and then move forward. So after Conforto, after Alonzo, after McNeil, who do you want to include in your core? Is it going to be Nimmo? Is it going to be Smith? Who is it? You have to prioritize. And this is where emotions get in the way of making good, rational decisions. We're fans. We get attached to players. I like Nimmo. I have his autograph on my Brooklyn Cyclones program when he played with Brooklyn. It's hanging on my wall. I'm looking at it right now. I love Nimmo. But is he a premier, top-tier center fielder slash leadoff hitter? No. Is there room for improvement? Yes. Does he satisfy the moment? Yes. And if you can't improve it, you stick with it. But if you can improve it, you do it. Just like catcher. Real Mudo's going to be a free agent. It's a golden opportunity to get a premier catcher, not only offensively but defensively. This is where you make the move. So maybe you can hold off on doing something about Nemo if you move quickly and smartly and try to secure real Mudo. It's going to take money. You know, I, I, be on the free Max, I, think he's, I think he's hitting the nail on the head. I don't think there's another choice for the Mets this offseason. I think that I, is uh, plan A. I think that's plan A. Honestly, I don't know. I think real Muto is a great guy, but I just see – I see. I've seen. I've played a lot of franchises, and I, I I know understand that it's not real. But every single time he's batting two seventy seven with twenty home runs every season, and I am not. I just don't feel like that's like. Like you know, two seventy seven. You know, twenty home runs. Like you know, ninety eighty RBIs. It's great. It's nice. It's perfect. It's. You know, what, everything you would want a catcher to be. But it doesn't, I don't know, it just doesn't satisfy me in the way that, you know, sort of a steal would be. J.T. Realmuto was a, no, sorry, uh, J.D. Davis was a steal. Who else was a steal? Um, I guess, I don't know about, I guess sort of, Syndergaard was sort of a steal, but, you know, um, uh, who, who, like, you know, there, there are steals. I just feel like if we were to get the kind of player that I said before, like, for instance, like, last season, I was, like, totally up to, like, I said, like, I did not want Dom Smith to be on the team because I knew he would be really good, and I knew that his, his honestly, like, last season, last offseason, his trading value was the roo the roof. He was the exact guy I described, and I think it's what GMs, what smart GMs, which there are a lot of in the league, 
It's what they look for. The first baseman who lost the job to the rookie of the year. It's the classic situation. Every every team should have wanted him. But Brody said, no, no, no. We're just going to put him on the bench. And I understand. The bench is for, you know, you're not supposed to have bad players on the bench. But to have, like, like Don Smith is on every single leaderboard right now. And I just... It's I'm, it's great that he's DHing and you know Alonso is at you know first base and then DH and everything, but I just don't think that I think that Don Smith should have been traded a, a, a last off season. I think he should have. I I didn't. I wanted him to to be good, but I didn't want him to be good on our team because he has no place. He, you're right, Daniel Murphy. It's it's you know inconsistent fielding. It's. I can't, you know, I can't, you know, trust you in left field when it's a position you just learned. Um, honestly, I think JT Mita is fine. I'll be very happy if they sign him. But if we do get someone who has, like, hit, like, 200 in, like, five games in, I don't know, who, uh, like, for the Phillies, I don't know. Like, maybe there's a Phillies, uh, you know, catcher prospect. Or um, who's the team with a... Maybe the Cardinals catcher prospect with the Audi at the plate. Who, maybe um, uh, like the like a Cubs guy who got who who couldn't can't go up because of Wilson Contreras. Like these are there are so many guys who are just sitting in AAA waiting to become the next star and are just stopped by the people who are already the stars. And I just feel like if we were to get that kind of catcher instead of like you know. JT Real Muto, it would not, we wouldn't only, we would not only have to give up a lot of our resources, because look, money is a lot of resources, and we are on the Cano contract. We're on the Cano contract, and that's not, that's not a lie. We are on the Cano contract, we're paying him, we're paying to ground tons of money, we're paying, you know, we have no revenue from this, no ticket sales from this year. I, I, I don't know what the deal is with sponsorships, and you know, how, how TV, our, our TV networks are working with the the ratings and whatever, but I'm telling you that um, I think that 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 signing a player with so much money right now, like could and could make us end up like the dot like like the Red Sox or or the Nationals, they they the highest payrolls and an average team, and I do not want to see that it's it's and like being in debt as a baseball team it's it really sucks and you you know you you've seen that a lot of the time free agency is not the only way to go especially when you can get talented guys and give up nothing and i know it's a bargain it, it is a bargain if, if these guys do continue to hit 200 Matt. it's a bargain but i know brody van wagen and is smart one second, I have to leave, so I, let me just say my final thing. I'll listen to you. Well, just, I just know remember, it's a remember, however, that the, the the books completely change. Like like what you're talking about with the finances and the fact that they didn't make money this year, the books completely change once once Steve Cohen is in the picture. So don't think of it as the ball team in debt because of this year. I mean, it, yes, he retained some of the debt, and they do have – uh, I believe, uh, I mean, Mike can speak more to this in terms of the, the ballpark, but just remember that the books completely change once Cohen's pockets are involved. And, and I'll let you finish since you got to go. Okay. Um, so, yeah. I mean, 
honestly, I I do I do like this team, and I do like how how well Brody has constructed it. I don't know if he had any kind of involvement in you know Pete Alonso. The only thing I remember with Brody and Pete was was that he didn't like he didn't call him up for September for, or something because he wanted to save service time. I don't know or something like that. But um, and I I thought he should have. I thought that Pete Alonso was going to be a good player. Even even like I just like watched one of his Triple A at bats, and it was just like it's like the same thing you see today. It's just like he's fouling off pitches. He does swing at stuff, but he's always he's like you know not to be cliche, but he's battling, and you know it's 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 intense, and you know I I love him. And I and I, you know, I can't wait to see him, you know, be the captain because I think he will be the captain one day. Um, with the other players, again, I think that honestly the best lineup right now is like for the future. I'm saying I don't know where Cano fits in, but it's like Pete at first, McNeil at second, Jimenez at shortstop, Davis at third, like. I guess uh, Dom Smith in left, Nimmo in center, and Conforto in right. I'm only another thing that I look at in terms of uh, a player's, you know, how good they are is not only their 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 um, their on base percentage, but what makes that up that on base percentage, which includes walks, vision. Aka being able to make contact with the ball and clutch. Clutch is huge for a hitter. You know, I don't, I don't know if JT Rumi Two is a clutch guy, but if they're gonna get a clutch catcher, you know, if they're gonna get a, a catcher, he needs to have clutch. Clutch is everything we need, which means clutch means RBIs, and that's that's all we need right now. Especially if we're gonna try to get a big offensive and defensive talent. With Nimmo, I truly believe that he can get better and he will get better. I think that he's really extremely disciplined and he at the plate. It just just turn on the game and he is he is focused and he's 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 fouling off pitches like crazy and he's you know, not letting the ball go from his eyes. And I he I, it's it's different honestly from last year. I looked at him last year, he was not doing what he's doing this year. And I think that next year if they put him in center field he can become a a at least some kind of maybe silver slugger contender. But I know that his vision, being able to make contact with the ball, his clutch, you know, RBIs, and discipline are way up. And it's not just batting average. Those are the things that make him be able to have a, a high on-base percentage, and hopefully in the future, a high batting average, and maybe some pop. You know, I I really do agree with you on that, and I know you got to go, Max, um, that Nimmo, his eye, he, he knows, it's just like that, the back-to-basics type of thing with baseball. See baseball, get barrel to a bat to baseball. Um, and that's been nice about it, and I appreciate you bringing him up and uh after you go, we'll probably go a little bit on a tangent about Nemo. So, Max, yeah. we appreciate you calling yeah. in tonight, and, and thank you yeah, for adding sure. your uh, perspective to it. Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, by the way, check out my Twitter. I tweeted Jerry Blevins about a video that I took of him uh, a couple years ago at a ballpark 
like I remember, I was like I was at I was at Citizens Bank Park. I was like, oh my god, it's 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 Jerry Blevins, and he quoted the tweet saying, "This is the nicest thing everyone's ever said to me above the bullpen at Citizens Bank Park." <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Like well, check it, it out, got, man. It got nice tons of hits. Luck. I'm now I'm now famous. I'm kidding, but yeah, I, Jerry Blevins. I actually loved. I always loved Jerry Blevins, and I'm, I'm like, you know, he you know he quoted my tweet, and I'm 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 blushing. <laughs> he's he's so nice. <laughs> we I can hear you. I, you're you're audibly blushing, man. I I, I love Jerry Blevins. His that curveball just never fails me. Okay, anyway, I have to go. I'm so late for my thing. Okay, I'll see you guys later and. <laughs> Um, I'll listen to this. So, uh, thank you so much, and uh, yeah, let's go Mets. Oh, one last thing. One last thing. I met Fred Wolfon <laughs> in spring training. I know. I met. This is something I wanted to say when I was listening. I met Fred Wolfon in spring training, and I honestly think, as much as the owners have authority and everything. It's really the GM. It's not people put so much stress over the owners, and I know they don't want to spend and everything. They don't want to spend, and you know, like Wilpons don't want to spend, and they're they don't want to get the big free agents, and everyone's you know getting you know pictures of Mike Trout with the Mets hat on. But it's really it's really the GM, and I don't think that you know. I think that if we're putting the blame on the Mets' failures the past ever since 2015. I would say it is Sandy Alderson and it's the Mets minor system for not making any for not developing anyone like really spectacular. I would it's it's not just the owners and it's really it's really so much more and it, you know people put way too much blame on the Wilpons, especially when they were smart and intelligent people. I have to go. Thank you so much. Goodbye. Thank you, Max. Um, I want to. I mean. Honestly, you know, it's funny, uh, Mike, that we, we thought we were going to have a short podcast, right? Um, so <laughs> the Sandy Alderson part, and I tweeted this the other day, that Sandy Alderson did exactly what he was brought in to do just short of a World Series win. And he's very he's similar. I, I call him the Donnie Walsh. Well, actually, I called Donnie Walsh the Sandy Alderson of the Knicks franchise. But um, I, I disagree with Max. I think that what we're seeing now, I mean, like you just said, in terms of the the uh, anybody that was drafted by Sandy Alderson is is uh, there for the taking by other teams, and I I really do think that Sandy Alderson, even though the game kind of caught up with him, I really think that Sandy Alderson did what as best a job as anybody has done outside of Frank Cashin. Uh, to try to bring some stability and foundation to this franchise. And anything that was short by him um, and with the way it all ended, I, I really – I mean, like, look at all these different prospects that have been included in these trades that we're talking about. You know, they're, they're immediately jumped to the, the uh, top of other teams' prospect list and – we see, I mean, you know, Kellenick's still being talked about. I, I'm not even sure whether he – did he make any debut this year? I don't know. But all I know is that both him and Dunn are having pretty excellent starts so far uh, to their – let's specifically go with them – to their Seattle Mariners career. So, you know, I, I think that 
there's certain times that I disagreed with Sandy Alderson in the moment, and sometimes he was a little dry for people's taste when it came to the press. I actually kind of like that. But I think Sandy Alderson's tenure and legacy is going to be very highly spoken of when it comes to uh, Mets history. Well, Sandy Alderson was brought here uh, not by the Wilpons, but by Major League Baseball. The Wolfons wouldn't dare go outside their comfort circle. And Sandy Alderson was just that. Uh, but he rebuilt the Mets by the book, and he was hampered by the Wilpons' finances the whole way through. He stripped it down. He stuck with the draft. Uh, they started seeing incremental progress. And then lo and behold they got to a point where a trade was warranted. They executed a move to augment the roster and it got them deep into the playoffs. That's by the book. That's by the book. Uh, I think they made a mistake in 2016 and moving forward. I think they were still in rebuilding mode or they should have stayed in rebuilding mode. Uh, despite the success of 2015, uh, but they didn't stay there. And they tried going all in with rather pedestrian veterans. You know, nobody outstanding. Pedestrian. Jay Bruce, pedestrian. Does not distinguish himself amongst national Let's even, like, bring up Neil Walker. So here's the question. I mean, I do do think that uh, Sandy Alderson probably was at the forefront of not retaining Daniel Murphy. I really do think that. I don't think that was just a Jeff Wilpont thing. However, when you're considering both the player that Daniel Murphy was becoming, uh, especially at the tail end working with Kevin Long, um, and again, you know, it's one of the most traumatic moments of my life, if we're, you know, grading on a curve, (laughs) uh, Daniel Murphy not getting in front of that ball in the World Series game four. However, um, he always really identified as a Met. He really wanted to stay a Met, and you always want those types of players on the, on your team. That was kind of the same thing you could say about Zach Wheeler. And, um, yes, maybe the bottom line is that that was the cherry on top from a defensive standpoint, and you saw how the, non, the, the non-instinct when it came to defense that Daniel Murphy had it all goes back to that famous, that infamous moment where he was asked, what position do you play? And he said, hitter. You know, that's yeah. the story of Daniel Murphy as a head. And um, at the same time, though, re- being replaced with Neil Walker, you have to wonder, like, the, thir- the three-year deal could have been worth it, especially considering the, the way that he identified both as a Met and some fans identified with him. But I know we're we're getting micro when analyzing this stuff now. Well, you know, I, I'd be willing to split blame fifty fifty. I, I guess in some instances, Alderson didn't think, you know, uh, such financial reward was warranted. And on the other hand, he was working within the Wilpons financial restrictions. Uh, you know, so uh, I, I'm willing to uh, sit on the fence on that one. Uh, my only point was, yeah, that got 
the Wilpons got to a point, Jeff got to a point where he decided he was uh, going to go off campus, which he really didn't do. Like father, like son, all he did was hire his buddy, uh, Fred prior to Sandy Alderson, never, never hired a general manager that he wasn't already previously knowledgeable of, of working, having a working knowledge of, you know, uh, after Cashin, Harrison, McLevane, Phillips, Omar Minaya, all previously worked in the in the Wilpons front office prior to becoming general manager. All of them, every single Fred hire was, you know, technically an in-house hire. He called in McLevane. He recalled them back from San Francisco, uh, San, uh, San Diego. Excuse me. You know, but that still should be considered an in-house heart because that's all he was familiar with. They weren't capable of going off campus and, and doing a full, intensive, and effective general manager search. They proved that when they were looking and floundering for a general manager until Bud Seller came along with Sandy Alderson. And then it was case closed. Here, the job's yours. But we also know the extenuating circumstances under which he was hired. But the Wilpon, Fred never went off campus for his general manager, and Jeff was the same way. He turned to a buddy. He turned to a friend. That's not a baseball-minded general manager search. So to me, it's the same old collegial bullshit that they've always pulled. And that's why I'm not on the side of Brody. I try to be fair, but I'm not on his side. That all it makes uh, perfect sense. You're, you're trying to analyze it, but you know that the relationship of Brody to the Mets is built. I, I don't want to be dramatic and say on lies, but um, you, you get, I, I think my analysis of what you're trying to say about it is, is correct. Well, they don't, know how to, they don't know how to trust people they're not familiar with, you know? It's not like the Fred, Fred Wilpon going off campus and hiring Larry McBell, whom he never met before, but knows he has a good baseball reputation from the Reds. How do you mm-hmm. like that one? Mm-hmm. That's a, it's, yeah, he never that's met a good... the man before, never interacted with the man before. Therefore, he will never get the job. Now, if you previously worked with the Wilpons, you got the job. All minus Jerry Hunsicker, who told Fred, beat it. Beat it. I don't want your job. I got a job here with Houston. He was the smart one. Uh, no, that's, that's uh, fair. That is fair. And, and you've, you've documented this so many times, too, just the breakdown of the, the mistrust of anybody. And, and, and it's weird because, like, I see that tentative look on Jeff's face when somebody's like, imagine if Larry McPhail was pitched to Jeff Wilpon. Somewhere down the line, for some weird reason, those two – and everybody, if you don't know who I'm talking about, go up and look uh, <laughs> how Larry McPhail turned the Dodgers around in the 1930s. Uh, they, there was very possibility if he hadn't turned them around, the Dodgers would not have existed anymore as an organization. And um, just look at it. You know, I could see him like, yeah, you know, uh, we'll – uh, we'll we'll discuss uh, Ford. You know, thank you for recommending him, Mr. Frick. But uh, we'll we'll have to do our due diligence. 
And then meanwhile, he goes down to Washington and gets the senator's job. <laughs> <laughs> you see, my, my, my point was always that they became an inbred organization. Meaning that Frank Cashin was the original general manager. It was a great appointment, obviously, a great hire. And Frank Cashin was the one who formed the front office consisting of Al Harrison, Jerry Hunsicker, and Joe McElvain. Okay? And when they gave the job to Harrison, Hunsicker and McElvain blew gaskets. They were like, how could you? What? We're out. So Hunsicker went to the Astros and McElvain went to the Padres. Once Fred figured out that Harrison was a complete and utter disaster and Cashman was still on board and both of them said, all right, I, I, I messed that one up. Fred didn't go off campus and do interviews. Frank didn't do interviews. This is all Fred, the operating owner. That's the key word there, the operative owner, not Nelson. So what does he do? He gets on the phone to the general manager of the Padres, Joe McElvain says, please, 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 please come back and run my team. And Joe says, yeah, no problem. I'll quit here. I'll be there tomorrow. And that's what happens. In the meantime, Frank Cashin brings in Steve Phillips. Say that again. No, I, I lost you, you for a second. Continue, please. Oh, okay. Yeah. Frank Cashin also brings in Steve Phillips into the front office. So when it's time to fire McIlvain, Steve Phillips is already readily available, you know, for Fred Wilpon to turn to, which he does. And it's Steve Phillips who brings on board Omar Minaya. And that's where Fred becomes familiar with Omar. And then Omar goes to Montreal. And then when it's time to hire, uh, fire Steve Phillips, Fred isn't familiar with anybody. They're incapable of going off campus and doing GM interviews. So what does he do? The same thing he did with McIlvain. He gets on the phone to the general manager of the Expos and say, Omar, please, I beg you, come back and run the Mets for me. And Omar says, yeah, you got it, baby. I quit here. I'll be there tomorrow. And then, of course, we know at the end of Omar's tenure, everything imploded around them. And don't forget, Omar and Sandy Alderson overlapped because of the fiasco that had ensued because of Madoff. And the changes, oh, well, that was actually the, uh, the, the Adam Rubin implosion as well. But still, so Fred escaped having to go off campus and hire a general manager he was not familiar with. Never has. Sandy Alderson was imposed upon them. And then when they, you know, managed the wherewithal to actually contemplate firing him, Jeff hired a friend, somebody he was very com- comfortable and familiar with. You see, so that's what I mean by they they – they, they were an inbred organization, decision-wise, decision-wise. You know, and, and sometimes you just need to bring in a fresh face with a new idea and new concepts and a new way of doing things. And the Wilpons never, never, ever invited that. The only time it was ever imposed upon them was with Sandy Alderson. <clears throat> yeah. And just you wonder, like, what Heim Bloom could have done with this team. Um, but you know that's 
it do, doesn't matter now uh, because well, now a whole other chapter is going to be written, and and we shall see what's uh, coming up. Just, I'm sorry. It just goes to prove that here's a man with a, a, a great baseball reputation for what he's done with the Rays, whereas that would have been the smart thing to do. Jeff did the safe thing by hiring somebody who he was familiar with and, and who, whom he trusted personally, not professionally, personally. And, and, and can I also just throw out, sorry, I just wanted to throw out there that for some reason you talking about Brody and the friend, and, and, and this is, and we're going we're gonna to bring it all back around to what we started with when we're talking about the Wilpons tenure. Tone deaf. You mentioned it in quoting, you know, I, I say it a lot, but you mentioned it earlier. Um, Sandy Alderson, who was outside of this organization, endeared himself to fans immediately, not in terms of moves and getting rid of people like Oliver Perez and Louis Castillo, just, you know, within days of spring trading, uh, getting rid of them. But the day of his press conference, he was wearing a Mets tie. You can look it up. I forget whether it had the script Mets logo or whether it had the interlocking NY. But he was wearing a tie of New York Mets ilk. He was wearing the colors. He didn't have to put a jersey on. He didn't have to, to put a hat on. He was already wearing the Mets tie. And I think that alone showed how he kind of understood the fan base weirdly better than the owners who have been around for 20, 30 years at that point. Um, and now, you know, uh, Steve Cohen is somebody who I read an article that Reggie Jackson's a, a apparently friends with Steve Cohen and was saying how, yeah, he, you know, kind of half-heartedly tried to buy the Dodgers, but, he had always said, any time that I had said, hey, you should go, you should make this play, you should make this play, he would always say, I'm, I'm really holding out for the Mets. And it, it, there's something emotional, it seems, with, with Steve Cohen wanting to get the, uh, his hands on the, this organization, even if he already has 8% of it. Steve Cohen, uh, to uh, everything we've read about him, is a humongous Mets fan, and his mother's a humongous Mets fan. And I'm very interested to hear him in those first days, especially the first press conference, and see how that element connects. Um, and, you know, so it, it, there's there's a lot to uh, there's a lot that's about to happen, man. And before we go, before we end this specific show, I'll, I'll go back to you to to ask you is what else do you want to add before we we segue. Well, Steve Cohen now becomes the ambassador of the New York Metropolitan Baseball Club. And that means the entire, what, 58-year history? He needs to reconcile uh, what had been failed to be addressed for many a decade. Uh, There's some catching up to do. And him being the Met fan he is, and like you say, his mom being the Met fan that she is, I'm sure he understands what I'm talking about, as well as all Mets. Uh, you know, there's something to say about making us feel more at home rather than patronizing some shrine to the Dodgers. The exterior facade, there's nothing you can do about it. It's literally set in stone 
slash brick. Can't change it. But what we can do is alterate it, change some things, incorporate some things. I, you know, there's nothing you can do about the Dodger footprint in City Field. It's there. Keep it, embrace it, but expand it. This team's history and connection back to the Giants. That's this team's true lineage. The only real connection the Mets have to the Dodgers comes through Gil Hodges. That's the strongest link we have. People like to put more of an emotional bond behind it than actually exists. And 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 Sam, you and I, there's no more bigger modern day proponents of the Brooklyn Dodgers, you know, very few yeah. than you and I. You know, but we're talking about the Mets here. So the footprint that exists there now, keep it, embrace it, but expand it and incorporate the New York Giants legacy in their relationship you know, to the formation of the you, New York you Mets. really need to go you need really need to go out to San Francisco and see the New York Gotham Club and I I think it's a, it's really for season ticket holders, but I, I was lucky enough a tour and the Gotham Club out there, you know, it's it's probably for like season certain season ticket holders, but it it basically is a shrine to the New York Giants era. And it's the first place that I ever knew of uh, the existence of a Babe Ruth in a New York Giants uh, photograph, in a uniform photograph with John McGraw uh, for, like, some charity game. And um, you would just eat this up. And it makes me think that that's kind of what the Mets need to do is incorporate National League. They make, somehow make a shrine or museum to New York National League Baseball that also includes they the Mets. To. Not saying they need they to change need to. the Mets Hall of Fame. That's what they need to do. I, I mean, you know, if you really want to incorporate National League Baseball back to 1876, you know, in New York City, New York, a uh, uh, history of New York City baseball, which encompasses everything, every team, other than the New York Yankees. You could corner the market on that. You can make it the premium museum on the East Coast. Uh, 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 um, you know, uh, early, uh, mid-19th century baseball, New York City baseball, and, and beyond into the modern day. You know, there's so much there to to do and to celebrate, and it could be done there. You know, look, I, I, I want you, Sal, uh, Sal, listen to me, Sam, to close your eyes for a second. Anybody listening, close your eyes for a second. What do they call it? The Coca-Cola porch now? Formerly the Pepsi porch, right? Think of that section. It has a similar slope to the bleacher section of the polo grounds, right next to the Chesterfield sign and the clubhouse and the stairs leading up to it. But it's there by itself. That's a corner of the park that could be dedicated perhaps and call it the polo corner. I don't know. I'm just imagining things. But as you say, Sam. You mean, you, you, you know, are you level, saying that you got to get Ralph out. Lauren involved? Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> 
90 seconds. But what I'm saying is level out the celebration and incorporate more. The, th- the, the fingerprints of the bums are already there. I'm not saying you have to remove them and wipe them away. You just need to expand it and level out exactly, you know, where it is that we come from, the departure of both teams. And then somehow, some way, inside the park, you know, after having walked in and threw it after side, within the park, remind everyone how much this is a celebration of the Mets. And expand that Hall of Fame. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think you – I can't say it any better myself. And um, we are uh, in jeopardy of bleeding into our archive time. So we're going to uh, have that be our last words. Um, uh, mine That's is, it. you know, anticipation. Anticipation. Just let's sit back, relax, and hope the, the owners uh, get this thing done. Wishing and hoping and thinking, and praying, and let's go Mets. That's how I'm going to end it, folks. Thanks for listening. Take care. Good night.